as NASA and SpaceX prepare to make history with the Demo-2 mission and the return of astronauts launching from U.S. soil, we are going back into our Talkie Space archives to release never-before-heard episodes related to this special upcoming launch. For this episode, we go back to January 2020, when Talking Space was at the Kennedy Space Center for the in-flight abort test of the SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is the first episode completely recorded in and ready to be released for this brand new decade. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. Boy, I, I'll tell you, we've got a lot to talk about tonight. I'll, I mean it. Um, all wrapped up and ready to go. Sleeves are all rolled up. Let's get this show on the road. We will continue covering commercial space as Talking Space has been there for every single commercial crew test flight, and has been there for pretty much every crew test flight, for that matter, since the end of the Space Shuttle program. I think the only one we weren't there for was one of the Orion abort tests. But Talking Space was there on January 19th, 2020, as SpaceX launched a Falcon 9 rocket not to be returned with a Dragon crew capsule on board that was to be returned as part of its in-flight abort test. The mission launched on a suborbital path, and just about a minute and a half after liftoff, the engines shut down on the rocket, the abort system activated, and the Super Draco engines successfully pushed the Crew Dragon capsule away from the Falcon 9, parachutes deployed, and it was safely recovered in the Atlantic Ocean, completing a successful in-flight abort test. And boy, that was such a unique one to be at. It's one of the few times you get to go to a mission and say, Boy, I hope this blows up. <laughs> Boy, I hope this blows up. Yeah, I mean the um, uh, first off, the the um, j- just to add a little bit more hit, more history to that uh, now forgotten booster Sawyer. That was one of the ones that you and I saw come in, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that booster actually flew four times. That was its fourth mission. The one that you and I saw was. After the Bag and Bandu 1 mission, which was the first Block 5 launch of a Falcon 9. And uh, we were there for Parker Solar Probe, I believe, after it launched in 2018 and saw it come back. So that was yeah. really cool. Yeah, that that's correct. And Oh, uh, and... actually, we saw it after its second launch, Miraputi. Bag and Bandu was the first one in May. We saw the one that came back in August. And then I believe it also did one out on the West Coast before it finally took the uh, in-flight abort test. Yeah, it ended its career, but it ended it um, on a on a good note at least. It uh, gave this uh, vehicle a ride and uh, gave its career away for uh, for testing for piloted flights. So, um, again, Sawyer, that that must have been quite a quite a scene to go ahead and actually see the booster fail. Well, it was. And it wasn't at the same time. It was probably uh, scary because if 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 because if I remember exactly when I was watching this, everybody was going whoa, and I'm I'm you know kind of live tweeting this whole whole uh, scene from home, and to me it brought back some ghosts. If we're being honest, if we're being honest though, I think the the scariest part was the giant cloud that got right in the way as we were all trying to see it blow up at the press yeah. site. Oh, that okay. was the scary part. We missed seeing the explosion itself. So um, I was hoping to be able to relay, oh, it was so cool to see this big fireball and all of this craziness happening. And uh, we didn't really see it, but we heard some of it at least. So that was something. Yeah. But, you know, again, there was a lot of there was mixed reactions out there. You could tell from some of the uh, uh, the old salts that were watching this, you know, wow. Yeah, it was really, really really neat but you know it it kind of harkened back a few other things that you didn't want to be harkened back to and uh but a lot of other other people were like really scared 
I think the difference with this one, though, is that this was expected, this was planned, and like I said, it's the only time in my entire time with space flight of watching it, and in the 11 years we've been covering it, that I've wanted a mission to fail, <laughs> and it did, just like it was supposed to. That It's kind of fun to root for a rocket to blow up, knowing that that's what it's supposed to do, I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's a little weird watching it, but... Uh... Uh, the results of that were were phenomenal from what I'm understanding, correct, Sawyer? Yeah, I mean, if you think it's weird watching it at home, try watching it in person when you're like, all right, you're watching the countdown clock knowing, all right, we're expecting a beautiful launch, and we're not expecting this to make it anywhere close to orbit. And then the whole question of what can you see? And uh, But yes, everything seemed to go almost flawless, pretty much according to plan, It the fact that it barely even pulled three and a half G's here, we're talking amazing results. So safe and as comfortable as it can be, all things considered, in the event of an emergency. Yeah, I mean, um, I think to put this in perspective, and I'm trying to remember, and I could be, you know, forgive me if I'm wrong here. Um, some of this was hearkened to the Soyuz event that we had not too long ago where we had a, an abort triggered by a faulty booster and the the you know nick Hague was on board the american astronaut um both he and his russian counterpart had to go ahead execute uh, the abort and so on but i think they pulled something like i almost want to say what nine g's i'm, I'm hearing anywhere between six to nine g's something like that i heard and six to nine which is not comfortable again considering most launches stay at about two to three Right, and and given the force that this thing was pulled off of the the launch vehicle with, you know, almost you know three a little over three Gs, that ain't bad. So this was really really a colossal uh, achievement for uh, for SpaceX. Yeah, that was huge. Again, we were expecting those numbers to be much higher, and it's fantastic to hear that and to see how well it worked with how much has to happen in such a short amount of time from the moment that it gives the command for the engines to shut down to the moment that it commands the pressurization to begin on the super draco thrusters and then for them to activate and pull the spacecraft away and again the other nice thing about the system here is that it's built in so you're not having to dispose of anything or wait to get rid of it it's built into the system it's built into the rocket so your escape system is with you the whole time, which is pretty nice. And again, when it works as well as it does like this, it's amazing. The nice thing about the whole thing is is that you really don't want to use something like this. You're hoping that you don't have the bad day, but gosh darn it, it's a good idea to have it, and uh, it's something I wish we had on uh, on shuttle. But uh, you know, because of the design of the vehicle, that was that was just darn near impossible. Now, because of the, you know the capsule design and a few other things, we've got some possibilities here of getting people off of that stack quickly and safely. And it's just going to go ahead and save lives going down on the pro going down this program's path. And I'm really, really crossing my fingers we never have to use this system. But thank God it's there. Exactly. That's the point is you hope you never have to use it, but if you do, it is there and you want it to work. And it it did. And uh, so here's the point of view as it was from where we were at the press site. Again, none of us have ever seen anything like this before. I have I saw people with some of the most unique setups I have ever seen for a launch there. Uh, one person in particular, uh, he goes by the Everyday Astronaut. You've probably seen his stuff on YouTube. There's a good chance. Um, the setup that he was using was he had a camera hooked up to a telescope. We're not talking like a telephoto lens. We are talking an actual telescope. And he had it controlled with a joystick like you would see at a flight simulator on a computer. And the whole goal was to have this crazy close-up setup, which I looked at it, and my goodness, it, I've not seen a rocket up that close from three miles away, and to follow it and hopefully catch the explosion. And there were a lot of similar setups, people with these huge lenses and these adapters to try and get as close to it as you can and see this crazy plume. And, uh, you know, there were people on the VAB trying to catch it. There was us at the press site 
And anyone who knows the area, the causeway was completely shut down for this mission. So we only had two viewing options. And, I mean, it doesn't hurt that 39A is dead ahead, and they've cleared out some of the trees and bushes, so it's an even clearer view. Yeah, so we had that conversation before, and you were saying that they really, really clipped all of that shrubbery in and around that area. Because when I was over there, if I recall, there was a lot of you know greenery and shrubbery surrounding the, the turn basin there, right you know, in right uh, uh, behind the, the countdown clock. You were telling me that's all gone. That's all gone by the countdown clock. The bushes that were on that little, it looked almost like an island in front of 39A, gone. It's wow. just a completely clear shot. I mean, I didn't know there were buildings down there. I mean, we see them when we drive by, you and I. But mm-hmm. otherwise, if you're just at the press site, you don't realize there's a lot of little buildings in the way. And now you can <laughs> see those. And They've cleared it, so it's basically a 180 view where you can see all 41, 40, 39, A and B. You can pretty much see all the major launch pads, 37, from the press site now, which I guess is more of a safety thing now. So, hey, we don't need to put people out under the path of a rocket that's intentionally going to explode. <laughs> if if I recall exactly, too, um, um, Marianne Binder, I think her name was, she had also a similar setup there for the Parker Solar Probe. At least she had a, a, I guess it was a Celestron 8 aimed at the launch pad. That's exactly what they had. They, She was working with Everyday Astronaut on that. Yeah, I mean, that, that setup was, because was, I remember taking a picture through, um, well, she permitted me to go ahead and take a picture of, uh, of the Delta Four Heavy um, through that lens with my... Uh, uh, with my iPhone, and um, it, you know, I uh, that was something I posted up to Twitter. I had to go ahead because of the optics; you have to go ahead and reverse the the view, but um, or else it looks like you know pointy end down. But um, uh, you know, it it really did perform rather well. So I guess they were trying to take that to the next level. So I need to ask, just for giggles, did that perform up to snuff, or did that kind of is that still a work in progress? <laughs> oh, the setup worked great. It was beautiful. It was shot in 4K as well. So uh, I know someone there had an 8K camera. Uh, don't ask me how, but th- there was some amazing equipment brought out for this. There weren't as many people here for the in-flight abort as there was for OFT, well, especially fewer than DM-1. But, you know, the, the people that were there, they were committed and dedicated to getting this thing on camera as opposed to me. My goal was to get this thing on audio to see what we could hear. Admittedly, of course, there are some photos that we'll post online. I've posted some to Twitter. We'll post some in the show notes here. But, you know, the goal is what's going to happen 91-ish seconds into this mission. What's it going to look like? And I think the interesting thing that we captured in this audio, I love this recording in particular, not because of the rocket sound. If you've listened to any of our past episodes, you know how amazing these rocket launches can sound. The engines, the roar, the bass, the feel of it. There is nothing like it. But there is also nothing like hearing a whole bunch of reporters who deep down were all space geeks waiting to see if a rocket will explode and finally getting a chance to root for it. And I think in this one you can really hear it. And that's what I love about this is all of us were there going, all right, First off, the mission was delayed for hours, and the weather was expected to get worse and worse as the day went on, and sure enough, the weather did get worse as the day went on, even though it was a six-hour launch window. uh, As the day went on, the clouds would start to roll in, and then there was concerns of thunderstorms. So it got pushed, 8.30, 9.30. I literally took a picture, posted it to Twitter. I looked up from posting, and the clock had changed an hour. (laughs) Uh, And then finally they said 10.30. We're like, okay, right. I had a good feeling about it, but we were all basically saying in the press room, if this thing gets pushed past the 10 o'clock launch attempt, it's probably not going to go. And this was a Sunday. This is the second attempt. Saturday, it didn't go because of a whole bunch of other stuff, mainly weather in the recovery area, which is now a huge factor when you're trying to recover a capsule, not just a booster or a fairing. And it gets to 1030. They're like, we're going to proceed with the count. Basically, if it doesn't go, they're recycling to 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon, four hours later at the end of the window. So, okay, let's see what happens. We get out there. Count keeps going. All right, winds are a little high. We're probably going to scrub it. And then it keeps going. 
And then we look right up and go, oh, the sky's mostly clear. There's just one cloud. And the cloud kept inching and inching right over the launch pad. The launch went off just fine. But then the concern was, oh, don't tell me that's going to be right over the area where the rocket explodes so that we're not going to see a single bit of it. And uh, I think you'll know what happened based on the audio that we're about to play. So we'll go ahead and play the launch audio for you. Now, I do want to say, keep listening. You'll hear us at about 90 seconds in of when the rocket's supposed to explode. Keep listening for about 20, 30 seconds after that. You will hear something. It will sound a little bit like a booster landing, but it's not. See if you can pick it up. Let's go ahead and play the launch audio. Go ahead, as always, boost up your speakers, give it a listen, and enjoy not just the sound of the rocket this time, but in particular, the sound of the people around me. That boom at the end, by the way, that was not the actual explosion itself, from my understanding. Following the breakup, which actually was basically an explosion for this one, uh, we didn't know if it was going to just break up, if there was going to be a fireball. There was the fireball, but as you heard, none of us saw it because the clouds were in the way. That one cloud blocked the whole thing, so we missed it. But all of a sudden, we're looking and going, we can see part of it. There it is. You may hear part of that in the audio. A piece of the first stage survived, and as that came back down, it broke the sound barrier. And that's why it sounded like one of the booster landings when their first stage booster breaks the sound barrier. You hear the sonic boom, and that's exactly what that noise was. And we thought it was hearing the explosion. It took a little while to figure out, that's a piece of the rocket that survived coming back, breaking the sound barrier. And then the audio didn't quite pick it up, unfortunately, because it was a windy day. But about a minute and a half after that, we could hear a second boom. That, however, was it crashing into the Atlantic Ocean where we saw a big giant puff of smoke coming out of the water. You could clearly see it looked like a mushroom cloud almost coming out of the water from that big piece still intact impacting the water. And that was amazing. And normally I hate when people are loud around the audio because you don't get to hear the rocket. But this one... I'm sure you still get the feel of the rocket, but I love everyone just groaning, looking at the clock, hearing the explosion, knowing we didn't get to see it, but the surprise of, hey, piece of it's there, and oh my gosh, we can still hear it. It was a lot of fun to be around those people for this one. I'm totally envious of you, Sawyer, because yeah, it, it sounds like it was a really, really kind of a, a visceral group 
event with uh, with everybody in 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 the press. But uh, understanding too that that last sonic boom was not the not what we thought it was. It was actually a piece of the first stage that had survived breaking the sound barrier. That is just stunning to me. I mean, that's the only way I can put it. It was just absolutely, you know, mind-boggling to me that this thing survived, one, you know, such a violent event, and number two, actually broke the sound barrier trying to come back in. Well, apparently, those pieces went to Mach 2, is what they told us in the press conference later. So Wow, seriously? That piece was, that piece was at Mach 2 after explosion from separation, so... That makes sense that a few seconds after, uh, we didn't hear the actual explosion and the delay was it slowing down as it went below Mach 1. Wow. When we, you know, when I set out to record these, normally I know what to expect in terms of settings for getting the rockets, the engines, the vibrations, the feel. I had to try and make this one a little different settings-wise, which is why the launch itself may sound a little different, but I didn't know what we were going to get. I didn't know if we were going to get anything, if we were going to get a loud <laughs> boom, if we were going to get nothing at all. It was... <laughs> no one it's not like we can use past experience of oh it's i've covered falcon 9 block fives before which i have but never had one explode on me before so i you don't really know how to set it up and none of us really did that's why we had these crazy ridiculous setups that none of us ended up really getting to use except ours captured most of it the only other thing that i thought was interesting again we didn't really pick up that second impact on the ocean which was just really cool to see but our reaction to it all of us were like hey there's the mushroom cloud from it i literally ran away from the recorder went down towards where the bleachers were i was right next to the countdown clock went down Mm -hmm. to where the bleachers were and it's like yeah that's a giant mushroom cloud but my favorite part of that launch and i don't think the recording picked it up because you know the rocket is just that loud but as the rocket was lifting off and as it was getting super loud it actually set off car alarms, which is not unheard of. What is unheard of, that they were only from one particular brand of car. And talk about ironic and hysterical and fantastic. You can probably guess, for a SpaceX launch, which car's car alarms all went off at the same time. Oh, gee, Sawyer, please enlighten me. I have a funny feeling. I know what, but I'll let you have the honor. And it's totally not because I told you right after it happened, but <laughs> yes. Uh, apparently, it was Tesla's. All of the Tesla alarms in the press parking lot went off. And I know because all of a sudden we hear the car alarms going off and we just start laughing. And one of the guys afterwards was like, that was me. I'm sorry. Because with Tesla's, it'll notify you on your phone. I'm told I don't have one. It'll tell you on your phone if your car alarm is going off. And it will show you a picture of what's happening. And then I we went back in afterwards and someone came down through VAB and said, sorry, that was my car alarm. Mine also went off. My Tesla app notified me. I'm like, I'm noticing a trend here. So yeah, apparently everyone that had a Tesla had their car alarms go off. And I know, I think it was, I was there with Robin Siemengal, who's been on the show before. One of the people that he's friends with, he actually said, hey, can I get the automatic recording that your car does? So they were able to get the sound of the launch from a car. Wow. Well, look at it this way. It was just members of the family applauding a good test. (laughs) There you go. That's a good way to look at it. Yep. It's just so bizarre to me because I've been there for a bunch of these launches before and you'll get the occasional car alarm, but to have all the Teslas go off at the same time for this particular mission was just really funny and a bit ironic at the same time. And uh, again, I don't know if the audio picks it up, but all of us just start laughing of like, really, people? The car alarms, all of them, and they're all Teslas. It's it's funny. <laughs> that, is, that is kind of ironic. Uh, so. a- anyway, um, after... Afterward, um, I believe you folks had a chance to uh, ask some questions of the guys that will actually ride this thing in the not-too-distant future. Exactly. The entire crews for all future missions were there for DM-2 and then the flight after uh, for the first operational crew flight. Uh, and it was fascinating to talk to them about it because we had the press, the, uh, the press conference directly afterwards where Elon Musk was there. Jim Bridenstine was there. My favorite part, by the way, I do have to point out of that press conference that did not make it onto NASA television was as the two of them were entering the room, you know, they come in big fanfare, 20,000 cameras snapping, mine included. They all sit down 
And then Elon turns around and there's usually a picture that they post in the monitors behind them, as you've probably seen in the press conferences. And this one is one of what they expected the separation to look like of the capsule from the first stage uh, during the abort. And Elon just turns around, points to it, and mouths over to uh, Jim Bridenstine, NASA administrator, of like, hey, it looked pretty good. And the, they're just, I can't hear all of what they're talking about because of all the cameras clicking, but they're just pointing at it and they're laughing and just looking at the picture and smiling about how well it went and laughing and about the success of it. And it was fantastic to see that cooperation. I managed to get a picture of the two of them pointing and laughing and posting that to Twitter. And I think that summarizes right there the beauty that we've been hoping for for all these years of the, I guess, partnership, merger, cooperation, whatever you want to call it, of commercial space and government entities, of NASA and the private companies like SpaceX working together, finally getting crew missions going again and just saying, look, we're doing this. We're doing this together. Albeit we can hire private customers too, and you're our customer now, but we're doing this together. Yeah, and I think that the idea too is, I think you're looking at the future there. Uh, it won't, NASA, as uh, Jim Bridenstine is often good of saying, he wants to just be one customer of theirs, and they want to see if these entities are going to be able to seek out and find new clients to go ahead and use the services that they are setting up. NASA is basically being the, you know, they're being the, the seed, if you will. They're being the one probably will be the anchor customer, but they're hoping that this will continue, and then, you know, after the ISS's lifetime is over, you're going to have, we hope, uh, uh, new entities up there in low Earth orbit taking over from where the ISS left off, where you have orbiting laboratories that are now privately owned. And if you want to go ahead and perform an experiment on one of these orbital laboratories and you are a company or a university that has, oh, I don't know, maybe a, PH, a postdoc that wants to go ahead and, and use uh, launch services to go ahead and go up there and perform an experiment, that theoretically, that postdoc can go ahead, you know, okay, board one of these ships and off they go. And, of course, that is now a paying customer. And that's what NASA is trying to do. They're trying to plant the seeds for all of that. And I think that had to be in both of those men's mindsets, too, that, that this is this is just, you know, the next step in in that kind of process. And, yeah, the, you know, the, the, there should be a lot of back, back slap in there because this is – really one of the punctuation marks that still had to be had to had to go there's still a lot of paperwork to happen um but gosh darn it this really really is is going into the future here and both men were had to be absolutely ecstatic about how this this performed and it performed extraordinarily well and i think if you look back at that press conference sawyer um it showed. I mean, the, just the enthusiasm in that entire room, the you know the caliber of questions that I was seeing from everybody. Um, unfortunately, our question was kind of misinterpreted a little bit, but that's okay. We'll get to that. Um, but um, it 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 kind of really really sets the table for the future, and uh, that is really exciting. Oh, yeah, and to see that before the press conference even starts, because normally they just get in, they sit there awkwardly waiting for them to count it down, and here they are just saying, hey, look at this, you know, it's pointing around behind them, laughing, chatting it up, and the astronauts are sitting next to them, and they're enjoying it, to see everyone having so much fun with it. I mean, obviously, this is a serious business, and, you know, there's high stakes here, especially as we get ready to put people on it and put people's lives at risk again, but to see them having fun with it, and to see the, both the NASA people and the SpaceX people having fun with it and saying, look, we're finally doing this, and it looked better than the picture? I thought that was just so cool. And it, it, like you said, that, I think, set the whole tone for the press conference. Even if you couldn't really see the beforehand, you can see if you watch back any of that press conference, just they were loving it of, look at what we did. We knew this was our last major hurdle. And like they said, the next big hurdle pretty much after this is paperwork, and that's about it. And some more little tests, retesting more of the parachutes, which thankfully the new versions work beautifully. So, I mean, they're 
they're looking really good. They know it, and they're having fun, and it's nice to see that. As long as they keep safety in mind, I love watching them just have fun succeeding. It's going to be good, you know, and not only that, and it's something I've said here on this program several times, that these guys succeed, we all succeed. You know, the, the, the U.S. is going to be put into a position where we could start flying people from home again, and that's something we really, really want. This opens up the door to the ISS for the United States again, and that's ultimately the goal for this program, to get crew from here, from the United States, up to uh, up to the International Space Station, and that is going to be absolutely critical because now you've got redundancy. It's something we haven't had since oh wow, what you know, July 2011. So getting that redundancy back is just going to be you know really really a big deal. And that redundancy was just Russia. Soon there will be triple redundancy, two American redundancy options, and Soyuz. Now, I know what you were planning on <laughs> talking about there was, in addition to the press, the main press conference, there was a second one shortly afterwards that was not broadcast on NASA TV. And uh, during that main one, there was obviously NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, SpaceX CEO Elon Musk, and the two astronauts for SpaceX that will fly on the first regular mission to the space station. However, there was also the crew that will be on DM-2, the Demo Mission 2, which will be the first mission, it seems like at this point, since July 2011, to carry humans into space from American soil. And that was Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken. And uh, all of a sudden, they're like, hey, the astronauts are just coming back from uh, the Launch Control Center and from checking out recovery efforts, and uh, they'll talk for a little bit. So there was a really small group of us, maybe, just doing a quick head count to my head here, maybe 15 of us total. There were not a lot of people at this launch, surprisingly. Compared to DM-1, OFT, it was a lot smaller group, maybe 60, 70 of us total, local, you know, of U.S. and foreign media that were there. Didn't seem like a huge load of people. My press badge number was smaller than usual. But it was a nice little quiet group of about 15 of us that got to hang in there and uh, ask them a bunch of questions. Since no one really got to hear it, and I don't think anyone's heard it in its entirety, I figure we'll be the first ones, and probably maybe the only ones, to play for you in its entirety the interview with the crew of the first crewed mission from U.S. soil since the end of the space shuttle program after, immediately after, the successful IFA launch. What was your initial reaction seeing this quote-unquote picture-perfect um, it, it was pretty exciting for us, of course, you know, knowing that this is the, the last launch before we're scheduled to get on that Falcon 9 rocket and ride that capsule to, to orbit. So it was exciting for us. You know, we've been at this for five uh, years almost uh, as, as a part of the commercial crew program, supporting directly as astronauts in addition to our roles before. So it's been a long time building and, and really was an exciting day. Does the flight uh, test change anything about your schedules and training and anything like that going forward from today up to launch? Or is there just uh, continue on with their regular schedule? Yeah, I think it's pretty much as advertised, although we lost a day, right? So um, that's about it. Uh, you know, I think obviously a, a successful completion kind of puts a little more clarity into the rest of our training and, and you know, potentially a launch date, a real launch date, and those kinds of things. So uh, I think that's those are all good things. But when do they start talking to you guys about the <laughs> They don't. Really, our job is to be ready yeah, when the just launch date actually turns up, and so we'll do our, our best and be sure that we, we are ready and have done as much as we can for that date. And, you know, I, you heard earlier, I think, that there's questions about the duration and things like that, and uh, we'll be ready when they pick the date, and that will go into all the things that have to be ready. We're just one of those... Uh, one of those things, and we just try really hard not to be the long pole Would you prefer the a longer duration? <laughs> we would prefer the right duration, both to take care of space station, but accomplish all the objectives that we need to to really set the future crews up to keep you know station taken care of the way that it needs to be taken care of. Was it stressful um, watching today's launch? Um, you, know, you guys will be on board next time. Sure. And this is not something you want to happen on your flight. So how how yeah. was it? You know how. Well, our families were certainly watching from back home. Uh, obviously, they're keenly interested in, in those kinds of things. I mean, it was a, 
you know, you have a whole bunch of different things that go through your mind and emotions that you experience during a launch. Obviously, this is a key one leading up to our launch, so I think that part of it is pretty exciting. Um, and you want it to go well, but you also want to you want it to go well because we did all the work we needed to do to get to this point, and the things worked the way they're supposed to. And so far, that that's the case. But you know, once we get the vehicle back, you know, it's on it's on board the ship now. It was on board the ship a, a little less than two hours after it landed in the water, so uh, that was pretty neat to see. And then, you know, we'll see what the data shows and, and go from there. But it certainly is a it's a confidence builder from the standpoint of if you ever got into that kind of situation that. Dragon can get us away from the booster quickly. Well, how much better is the Crew Dragon abort system from the crew's perspective than the space shuttle, where you have black zones or dead zones where yeah. you could get to landing site? Yeah, I think that uh, it's almost as if Dragon has kind of two vehicles when you get in it, right? One that's going to take you into orbit, and you've got that Super Draco system to accomplish the escape if you need to accomplish the escape. So it's a completely separate system that allows that to get accomplished, and you know. Uh, on the shuttle, we kind of reuse the kind of the nominal systems in kind of off-nominal ways to accomplish the transatlantic abort or the return to launch site. And so uh, not having those black zones is really comforting, you know, from my perspective, to have the ability to get away if anything uh, uh, was going wrong. And, and on top of that, I think in addition to that escape system, we also have a much smaller rocket to deal with uh, just because of the size. And so just safety long-term should be, should be much better than the shuttle program was. So before you being shuttled, former shuttle astronauts and everything, when you practice the actual day of stuff back on Friday, mm -hmm. how did that differ and how is that similar? Is it a more relaxed, like, like more <laughs> relaxed that you're not going out there and sitting on your backs for three hours? You know you're, right. like, can you, can you talk a little yeah. bit about the differences between that process? I, I think, <clears throat> well, just as a, a kind of a review, shuttle was longer because of the same same kinds of situations. You know, you had the five-minute launch window with Dragon, we have instantaneous. Uh, but the difference was is there all the polling and all the checks that they needed to do for fueling happened after we got on board and seven people took longer, all those things. But I think generically, it, it's pretty similar up until we get in the vehicle. Then once we're in the vehicle, we're, we're in there roughly two and a half hours prior to launch is, is, is the nominal timeline. And then they start fueling about 35 minutes prior to launch. So uh, that is obviously drastically different. We've never done that with a, with a, a human-rated vehicle where we fueled it after the crew's on board. So that'll, obviously that's a different experience. But generally the lead up, especially the rehearsal we did the other day, is, it is very much similar to what we did for shuttle launches. It's just a little less on the back time, which is always appreciated. Yeah, I guess I would describe it as it was really familiar, yeah. having gone through it before a couple of times for Space Shuttle, this you know, was executed in a very similar fashion. Same building, same room that we did it before. Yeah, crew um, quarters is exactly the know, same. A little bit different yeah. transportation. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit different transportation to the pad and from yeah. the pad, but uh, other than that, you know, the, it was really familiar, at least from my perspective. Let's, Where start, were we? Let's start over here, just kind of get it organized a little bit. Let's start over here. How are, this is really exciting for us, but Mary Liz has my perspective, I didn't even know that. Hi. Um, thank you for doing this. This is such an exciting moment for all of us. We are on the ground feeling the excitement from the public. I'm just wondering how you guys feel knowing that you're pioneering this new era of human space flight, going commercial, bringing it back to the U.S. What are your feelings around it? Well, it, it, yeah, it's it's certainly exciting, and, you know. But keep in mind, this is you know somebody said it. Well, it's been said many times. Space flight's like the biggest team sport there is. So we are just the lucky ones that get to fly the spaceship. But there's so many people that have put years and years, you know, commercial crew program at NASA, at SpaceX, at Boeing. You know, it, it's a it's a huge effort to get us to this point from eight and a half years ago since we flew shuttle last. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I mean, it's 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 very humbling, certainly, and it's exciting. Uh, we also are trying to keep our focus on you know the technical matters, the operational matters. We're trying to get the vehicle ready to go so that when we fly it, everything goes the way it's supposed to. And then, you know, the the critical part is certifying the vehicle for future crews. You know, the the turtles that just graduated. You know. You know, making it a, a great view for those guys. So it's, and, a, it's and a huge. And the private citizen astronauts that will go too, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think all that, all those options are are on the board. Um, certainly not on our flight. At least we haven't been yeah. told we're yeah. flying with somebody else. But uh, <laughs> uh, 
but it but it is it's 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 a yeah it can it's create great, that opportunity and i think that's the ultimate yeah. goal is to create that opportunity for uh, more and more folks to have the opportunity that we've already had on space shuttles and uh, uh, hopefully drag in CST-100 and, and more vehicles. I think the administrator said that earlier. You know, that's the ultimate goal is to increase that access opportunity. Um, uh, where were you exactly this morning and what were you able to see? Did the clouds get in the way and did you see the capsule coming down? We were in firing room four, uh, same place that we were for the demo one launch, which is right over here in the launch control center at the on the Kennedy, Kennedy side. So just kind of right across the road from where you guys are right now. We had access to pretty much all the telemetry and all the video that was available, and so we were able to see the capsule. They had a an aircraft that was tracking the pad before liftoff, and then picked up the vehicle soon after, as it uh, was visible through the clouds by the plume being just so bright and we're able to watch it pretty much mm -hmm. through the entire flight profile and uh, watched it all the way to the point that it came on board the boat. So, Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut. Uh, hey, how's it going? So, uh, not that you guys aren't as fast as a computer or anything, but what are your actual options as astronauts and as phenomenal pilots to actually control the vehicle, you know, especially how do you turn and abort? Uh, after that point, you know, assuming there's some off-nominal situation, what, what are your options? What, what can you actually do with like the, the screens and the control systems? For this type of scenario, there, there are several automated abort triggers. For this particular example, it was a loss of, loss of thrust of the booster. That, that was the trigger for this abort, this particular abort, but there's several others. There's also a manual abort capability. We have an abort handle that sits right between us, and it's just a twist and pull. Okay. Uh, capability and that that is active from uh, a few minutes before the vehicle is fueled on the pad until we are safely in orbit so uh, it's a pretty unique capability as far as hand flying the vehicle during ascent we had some capability uh, with the shuttle but we don't have that with this vehicle so if it becomes a case of the vehicle is hard to control then obviously either manually or automated you would abort off the off the booster gotcha. Hi, Lauren Gresh with The Verge. Um, so I'm curious to know what your lives are going to be like for the next couple of months. How do you plan? I'm sure can't take any vacations or in the we future. We haven't in a while. What's that? <laughs> really? Taking any oh. in a while. a little bit of break for the holidays. Yeah. And uh, I know that the, the SpaceX team did as well. And that was, I think, good for all of us to kind of go forward here. And, you know, we are, we're planning week to week just to best optimize where the best place to spend our time, whether it's here in Florida or out in Hawthorne or back in Houston. And I know decisions have to be made in terms of what our ISS, you know, space station responsibilities are going to be when we get there, and that'll play into it as well. And so, you know, week to week, we just had a scheduling meeting after uh, the launch today, uh, and after for the, the next two vehicle weeks, was yeah. on the, I think the that it wasn't even on work wasn't on. even on the boat yet, and that's when we we had our scheduling discussion for what we're going to do next week. So we'll we'll uh, we'll travel cross country uh, at least once in the next week, and uh, we'll go from there. And our guest list was due on Friday. Oh, really? <laughs> For those who have requested interviews with them, that's why I'm slow in getting back to you. <laughs> yeah, Stephen Clark from Spaceflight Now. Uh, can you talk about your roles on the DM2 mission? Um, will you be doing any manual flying? The docking, will it be automated or a manual docking? And who's sort of commander and co-pilot? Yeah, we're, uh, our plan is to do some manual flying, uh, kind of at what we call the far field. And then closer to ISS, the, the normal plan um, is to do an automated docking. Um, ideally, it would be nice to test that capability, but I think we can get some really good data from flying a little farther away on the docking axis with the vehicle. So that, that is at least the plan going in. And there's some constraints with fuel and those kinds of things. Uh, and then for the, for the mission, I'm the vehicle commander and Bob's the vehicle pilot. Yes. Okay. okay, so famously in the right stuff, you know, there's a conflict between um, the engineers and the astronauts who wanted more hand fly the vehicle, just sort of following on from these other questions about the amount of control that you guys have. Um, really, how do you feel about that? Are you, are you comfortable um, with the amount of control you have of the vehicle? I mean, having no, no sort of black zones and being able to abort any time must, you know, alleviate that a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think we're comfortable with where we are on this vehicle, and, and part of that has to do with the mission that's in front of us. And so if you lay out the mission very specifically, and then you put the tools in place to protect you, and I, and I think our posture pretty much is that we have a pathway home in all circumstances. 
we don't necessarily have a pathway to save the mission in all circumstances. And so that's the posture that we're in. That's a little bit easier when the mission is really well defined, like launch and dock to space station. If you make the mission much more complicated than that, what capabilities you need to have to, to stay safe. It's a little bit harder, for example, if you're trying to accomplish a, a landing on the moon, you don't necessarily, the, the path home might be all that manual capability. It might be the same as continuing as it is to uh, uh, kind of go backwards, if you will. And so in our case, we tend to have the capability to go backwards to, to, to do something safe, but not necessarily save the mission. But I definitely appreciate the more complex the mission is, the more capability you really need to, you know, to make sure you do have those safety outs. So as is right now, because it's essentially to and from the ISS. Mission is well defined, and we have a safe path out of all of the situations that we're in, which is what our, what our design criteria is. If you make the mission more complex, you need more capability, which rapidly gets you into a case of just give it to you, give us everything. So. All right, these guys have been up for a little while, so um, we'll take just this one last question. I am Jim Siegel, I'm with uh, NASA Tech. And I was curious as to whether uh, you have been uh, practicing specific tasks that you might be doing up at the International Space Station. Have you been given certain investigations to help with or what? So far on Space Station, our responsibility is to take care of ourselves while we're there, not make a mess. Do no harm. From a hygiene perspective, and uh, uh, but we don't have payload responsibilities on board ISS uh, at this time. We haven't done training for that. We've done a little bit of preparation uh, um, just in case some of the really long lead items. Uh, I've done some EMU glove fit checks because that hardware has to fly and it has a long pathway to space station, but I haven't done the training associated with that hardware just yet, and so those decisions still still have to be made. Yeah, we'll have, you know, Bob's primary long lead item responsibility for as a station crew member would be EVA, mine would be robotics, and then, you know, just the normal ISS living stuff. We've done some of that over the last year and a half or two years, but, you know, if the, if the duration changes significantly, then there would be more added on and some maintenance classes and then some payload classes and those kinds of things. Just so, you know, we're there, as, as, as Bob said, as a help for, you know, potentially just Chris and his two Russian crewmates if we, if we get up there at that point. Some, sometime, I think, it becomes a three-person crew sometime in mid-April. So, you know, that's kind of where they want us to at least be there to be helpful. Thank you. I think it's interesting. There's a few interesting things from this, personally. You know, one, obviously, their families and everyone, how they're basically just, you know, watching at home, kind of texting along, just saying, all right, we're getting ready for it, ready to see. You know, I'm sure they also had the same jitters and fears that you have almost of, hey, we're watching what could be the worst-case scenario for our husbands here. But the other thing that really jumped out to me is, it sounds like they're preparing to be there for a while. We could have a crew that's not just visiting for a week playing capture the flag, collecting the American flag, testing out the systems, and coming home. This could be a crew that ends up actually having to train for a short duration, a short long duration, we'll say, stay aboard the IS. Yeah, it makes sense considering that uh, it looks like uh, we may only have one U.S. crew member on board um, after this after um, increment uh, sixty-two completes. So, yeah, I mean, I, that that makes a whole lot of sense because uh, uh, to have only one individual in the U.S. segment really, really is going to put a damper on science. And if we can get, um, you know, both. Uh, uh, Bob and Doug up to speed and uh, and you know get them helping where they can uh, I think that's going to be a really really boon a really big boon to science on the International Space Station during that that lull period um, the Soyuz launch and the Soyuz seats they're getting a little complicated which is also why we had Christina Cook on her long term mission that she just returned from not too long ago um, that opportunity that door opened up because of the Soyuz seat issue uh, and uh, and boy she really really made the most of it um, but yeah I mean that that makes a, a whole lot of sense Sawyer having you know uh, both uh, uh, Benkin and Hurley uh, going ahead and and making a uh, a bit of a camp out over there 
on board the International Space Station, and uh, neither one of them are are, are are alien to that environment. They're both, you know, veteran astronauts. So, I think that will will just only add for them being being quick studies if if that indeed happens. Uh, and they are there for an extended period of time. So it also, too, kind of pushes Dragon to a little bit more of its limit. And I think, um, as, you know, it was hoped that, um, you know, it would be a quick come back up, you know, go back to the ISS dock, say, hi, hi how, how you folks doing, drop off some stuff and say, okay, good luck, and get out but now because of the 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 crew rotation situation it might turn into uh a, a little bit long of a stay so um and again that that will just increase the confidence in 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 dragon and its and its abilities oh absolutely it'll be ready and the fact that they kind of know what their roles would sort of be if they were to be up there is a little bit of an indication that obviously it's something they're studying it's something they're looking really closely at I mean, regardless, at this point, we do know now officially that Doug Hurley will be commander and Bob Behnken will be pilot. It'll be both of their third space flights. So, you know, we've got positions now. We're getting more insight as we get closer. In fact, uh, just the week of this recording, the capsule that will be used for DM2 arrived at Cape Canaveral. We can finally say we, there is, a, I'll go as far as say 99% chance that we will see a crew launch this year from U.S. soil, which is exciting, it's ecstatic, and I am so happy that everything has gone well for all of SpaceX's tests up to this point. Yes, they've had their failures, but the whole point of having failures is to learn from them. And I I think they have, as we've seen from the last few flights here. Yeah, and when, when those things happen on a, on a test vehicle, um, to repeat uh, something that uh, Kathy Loiters, who's uh, sort of you know the the uh, lead of the uh, commercial crew program for NASA. She always says that these te- these little glitches when they happen, or these these events when they happen, are really gifts in a way, um, and they give you insight into the vehicle. They give you further. Uh, ways to study what this vehicle is doing, what it's up to, how it performs in certain areas, and so on and so forth. And not only that, but they've happened with nobody on board. So in a way, they are absolute, you know, there's no other way to, to put it, but they are indeed gifts. And then after the the end of the process, you come out with a much stronger vehicle. I mean, I'll point out uh, last March, uh, or not last March, last April, just the the sun, the Saturday before Easter, when uh, the uh, the DM1 spacecraft unfortunately disappeared in a cloud of hydrazine smoke over at uh, uh, landing zone one, um, that actually turned out to be a gift uh, because if I remember Kathy Loder saying during a uh, an interview for. For this event, Sawyer, she basically said they found out stuff about that spacecraft that they didn't know before. And it it helped both sides in that. It helped NASA's understanding about certain subsystems. It helped SpaceX's understanding about certain subsystems. And those learning experiences are given to everybody. You know, once they find something that, that is is you know non-proprietary that they can share. Uh, they go ahead and share it. And um, I believe Sawyer at the press conference, Elon Musk basically said, if it saves lives, it doesn't become proprietary anymore. And that was basically his thought on the whole manner um, with that. So you learn so much from these things, these little, you know, these little events that happen. And you take that learning experience and you go forward. And at the end of the, 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 uh, the whole process, you come out with a much stronger vehicle. And Crew Dragon is probably going to be, you know, it, it's been a crucible for it, but it's probably going to be one of the safest vehicles that uh, that that we've ever built. I'll go as far as to say probably the safest. Built-in abort systems, all the testing that's gone into it. You know, even Apollo, it was very safe. Obviously, it had pretty much a perfect record for launches and getting people into space safely. But you're talking 
there's always risks involved. This one, you've got an abort system built into the spacecraft. You've got all the computers and technology that is the 2010s and 2020 now being put into it. And even little things, like they talked about the parachutes. Mark II flew on DM-1. They said they were good, and they talked about this in the press conference afterwards. They said they were good, but now the Mark III demonstrated that they're great. It's those little improvements, but you may not see them at home. But if it's that little extra safety, that's great. Another thing I think that SpaceX now has going for them was just announced earlier this week. Bill Gerstemeyer, who was the head of human spaceflight at NASA for, I believe it was almost 30 years, and who's been working with the commercial crew program for NASA since the end of the shuttle program, is now being hired as a consultant to work on SpaceX's reliability team to get Crew Dragon ready. You've got one of the brightest minds at NASA who's dealt with human spaceflight through triumph and tragedy, who's seen the program develop from early on, and who has worked with commercial crew from the very beginning on your side too. Having that extra voice of reason too does not hurt. And I think SpaceX at this point is doing everything right to get this spacecraft off and ready to go safely. Yeah, Bill, uh, uh, Bill Gerstermeyer is probably one of the most respected individuals out there when it comes to spaceflight. He had has indeed a 30-year career with NASA. He was 16 years as as uh, associate administrator of uh, human spaceflight for the for the agency. And indeed, it's somebody that when he talks, people stop and listen. And uh, that was a huge, huge feather in, in SpaceX's cap to have him as a, in a consulting role um, over there to go ahead and make sure that all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed, and making sure that uh, uh, they have the best spacecraft they can give uh, Bob and Doug. And um, they will they'll go ahead and, and make sure that when that, that machine is is powered up and and ready for uh for our crew to step in it is going to be it is it is going to be the it's going to be a work of art and and i think that's that's what uh what everybody wants that they want a good safe solid vehicle and having um the voice of bill gerstermeyer behind it um is just you know really going to be it's it's just a feather in the cap, and and making sure that that vehicle is going to be going to be in grand shape. So, good on you, Mr. Gerstenmeier. I know your experience is going to be listened to over there. I'm sure you know you and uh, Hans Kroningsman are going to sit down and have a lot of lot of good uh, good conversations about you know crew safety and 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 uh, and pass along a lot of good stuff. And I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the end result. And I just want to say, we've talked to him on this show. We've heard him on this show before. I've talked to him multiple times at conferences and events, just personally, one-on-one, just getting to say hi to him and passing conversations. Fantastic person, brilliant mind, and that's why I think having that on board, you know, is it safe already? Yes, but it never hurts to have more brilliant minds helping out. So I think that's fantastic. I recall, I believe it was one of the ISS conferences that we went to, um, we talked with the head of the International Space Station program at the time, and he told us that their big goal was, and again, this is, I believe, the one in 2015 or 2016, that once commercial crew got up and running, they were excited to finally have a seven-person crew aboard the International Space Station. And the amount of extra science that they said they were going to be able to accomplish with just that one extra person was incredible and once we get all three of these means to get into space that means that we will be able to have seven people in space at one time and that means that we will be able to exponentially increase the amount of science being done the amount of research being done that impacts every single one of us back here on earth so not only is this important for the future of human space flight and eventually getting things ready to go on to mars and onward but this will help in the short term instantly right back here on Earth by increasing the amount of science being done. And if these do not succeed, as we're seeing, there's already concerns about being able to keep a six-person crew aboard the ISS. And so then things will even get worse. So that's why this is so important now more than ever, too, is not just to get people up, but to get science down. Exactly. And so I believe you were talking about Mike Suckfordini. Exactly. I mean, the last 10 years... When we did this show and started in 2009, we talked in 2010, 10 years ago, of what's going to happen after the shuttle program ends. 
we thought it was going to end in 2010. It didn't end until 2011, but we didn't know where we were going to go. We didn't know what the future was going to be, what we were going to be able to talk about on this show, let alone when we would see humans fly again. We had Constellation. That obviously did not happen. We had the talks of uh, the future for NASA, but there was little old commercial space still kind of floating in the background. Elon proposing this grand Falcon heavy crazy idea, and then this ridiculous proposal of being able to recover parts of the first stage by landing them on barges and on land. And here we are, 10 years later, in a new decade, 2020, and all of that is about to become, if not already, reality. Falcon Heavy has flown three flights. SpaceX has recovered more than 40 boosters at this point and has reflown them multiple times. They're now recovering fairings. And we are about to finally see commercial crew. Did I think it was going to take 10, 11 years? Absolutely not. I don't think any of us did. But we are finally getting ready to see it happen. And now it's feeling real. And it's feeling exciting. A lot of the things that uh, that you said, I mean, I still remember, and I've, I'm going to allude right back to this because I, I said this at the uh, during the first outset on the first program. One of the first things I recall uh, was standing there with you at uh, Pad 39A. Atlantis was was sitting there right in front of us, getting ready to uh, unfurl her wings for uh, uh, for the for the International Space Station for the last time. This was uh, L minus one, and uh, it was still rather cloudy. It was a rather cool um, uh, afternoon that we got out there to to see the uh, the uh, uh, remote uh, service structure retract. When we got out there, it had retracted already. So there she was in all her beauty, and it was very quiet out there. We we you know because of. Uh, Certain mitigating circumstances. It was just you and me and, and a uh, our uh, our NASA escort and uh, who was who was fabulous by the way, and um, uh, a BBC a BBC uh, crew and uh, it was for a while there it was very silent and you, all you heard was the wind and it was very dark and very cloudy and and it was sort of just the way the program was we didn't know we were heading into an uncertain future after this and atlantis looked like she was like oh i don't know what the future is going to bring but we're going to do this one last time and we were all sitting there everybody was asking us i, I remember what were we going to talk about after after sts was over and we said well there was always something to talk about there's always new missions coming up and lo and behold, wow, it has been quite a, a ride. And uh, I, I, think, I think the best is yet to come. I think we're, we're going to be seeing a return to the moon um, quite shortly uh, in another few years. Uh, I'm, I'm extraordinary, being a child of Apollo, I'm extraordinarily happy to see that. Um, but knowing, too, that's just going to be a stepping stone to Mars. But really, I am looking forward to ending the drought and getting U.S. astronauts from the from the Cape back up into space again. And that is just going to be a moment that I am I, I can't wait to bring everybody that's listening to this. I and mean, it's 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 just going to be an incredible moment. I think all of us feel that way. We're excited to bring it back, and we're excited to be able to bring it to you again. <laughs> didn't think we'd still be doing this, we're being brutally honest, <laughs> 11 years later, but I'm glad we are, and I'm glad we've found something to talk about, and, and again, we're just talking the year ahead, we're not even talking beyond that, there's still so much more beyond that as well that we're going to have to save for another episode, it feels like. The time this goes out, we will have had four Starlink launches, or uh, three Starlink launches this year alone, I believe, if my math is right, or would it be four? I think it's, I think it is four, actually. That would be four, <laughs> uh... We're talking multiple Starlink launches, let's say, <laughs> in the first two months of the year alone, we're talking over 200 of those satellites launched. Uh, we've had, you know, the a mission to the sun, congratulations, Solar Orbiter, another another resupply mission, the International Space Station, congrats, NG-13. So many things happening abroad as well. Again, that Solar Orbiter mission, a joint NASA-ESA program, launching aboard an Atlas V-411. The number of launches that have happened, the number of launches that are still to come in 2020, the launch rate, it's hard to keep up with sometimes. All of a sudden, I'll, I'm now living in South Florida, and it'll be, oh, there's another launch tomorrow. I didn't even realize it out of here just because of how many there are. And it's fantastic to see so many launches and the launch rate going up that it's hard to keep up with them. 
The interesting too, uh, Sawyer. There's a lot more player. There's a lot, a lot of players on that field too. Um, it's exciting times, and we're hoping to go ahead and bring at least some of that over to you and talk about it and try to give you some some perspective. The idea too is to also cut through some of the noise that's out there. Um, we we may get some slings and arrows for doing it, but that's okay. Uh, we want you to understand really, really what's going on. Basically, there's a lot coming up still in spaceflight, and we will be there to cover as many of the highlights as we can. Again, I can't say we will be there all throughout the year for every major event, but for all the biggest events that we can cover, we will be there in person, and we will do our best to bring them to you. So while Talking Space may not be your go-to for every weekly bit of space news, make sure you stay with us for all the big stuff, because we will do our best to be there physically for a lot of it and what we can't to help break it down for you. So, Gene, thank you for joining me very much for this first episode we record in 2020. I was so, so really, really happy to be here, Sawyer. And, Mark, I know you're doing some good stuff with uh, First Robotics, so uh, we miss you, man. Good luck. And uh, uh, tip of the hat to uh, to Kat Robeson as well out there. Um, thanks for, for uh, all the insight. And, Mark, I'm looking forward to having you back. Can't wait. Exactly. And thank you for joining us. It's been fun for me, at least covering all of these missions, and to be able to uh, bring you IFA, the in-flight abort test, again tonight. And uh, we look forward to bringing you a whole lot more for the year ahead. So until our next episode, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.